Welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host. You'll find us here on prn.fm Mondays at 10 a.m. And you can catch our back shows online at visionaries.podbean.com. On Visionaries, we talk about creativity in the arts, science, technology, culture, and spirituality, and about how we can enrich the world and ourselves by tapping into the energies of the cosmos. Along the way, we talk with some of the most interesting people around the world about the world we live in, the worlds they're creating. My guest today is Phil Cousineau. So, Phil, my apologies for scheduling you at 7 a.m. your time. Uh, how are you? I'm barely awake, but happy to be back in conversation with you, John. Great. So, um, Phil wrote the documentary film and companion book about Joseph Campbell's life, The Hero Journey, and if you've been listening uh, before our show just started, they were just playing a rerun of a show I did interviewing Bob Walter, the president of the Joseph Campbell Foundation, and we were covering Campbell. We listened to a bit of him. So I bump into Phil every decade or so at some Campbell event, and uh, among his other books are Soul and Archaeology, Readings from Socrates to Ray Charles, and The Art of Pilgrimage. And Phil's the author of uh, quite a few books, and he's a documentary film writer, storyteller, spiritual travel, adventure travel leader. And Phil, what else would you like to tell us about yourself? <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> Since myths are stories about how things come to be, we'll have to go back to Detroit for a second. Uh, born in an Army, Army hospital in Columbia, South Carolina, 1952, roared up into Detroit in the back seat of a 1949 Hudson. Oh, cool! <laughs> and as my parents, but it wasn't it wasn't chopped and leaded, huh? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> It was my dad's army car, and somehow that rumble of the tires got into me, and I've been traveling ever since. Uh, the, probably the most significant and trend-making thing in my life was that I, I grew up in a world that loved books, travel, and sports. We read the classics out loud Thursday, Friday, oh. and Saturday night. Most of my youth, after the television broke and my father kicked it down the stairs into the basement. And there's something about that rhythm of stories, reading books out loud together, and then listening to the radio a great deal growing up, all the ball games. And I, I think I've had a love of words since then. That's a commonality between my love of writing books, films, working in radio, television, now being a host of Global Spirit on PBS and Link TV. It's a love of story, telling my own, but also helping those who need a leg up by helping them tell their own stories in so many formats all around the world. Great. So I've got a pile of uh, Phil's books right in front of me, The Painted Word, A Treasure Chest of Remarkable Words and Their Origins. I'm kind of a a word person myself, so I uh, love that. Um, 
Fungos and Baseball on Baseball Haiku, Beyond Forgiveness, Reflections on Atonement, and Bill is, uh, Phil is a really interesting character, and I thought I'd take advantage of having a guest who has so much insight into story and myth, etc., and it occurred to me, and I did warn Phil in advance, that I might ask the question, um, who is Phil Cousineau and how did you create him? That's a marvelous question. I'm glad you gave me a little warning on that <laughs> because I have been mulling it over. And a curious thing happened. I, I seem to know the exact moment when I, how can you say, chose my identity because I've done so many things. Um, years ago, I worked on a kibbutz in Israel. Oh, wow. After roaming the world for two years, I wanted to settle down for a bit and love the idea of working outside, working in a communal setting. And one day working out in the fields, planting 2,000 avocado trees with a couple of friends, Trevor Green and Steve Burkett from England. My friend Steve, who had grown up fairly wealthy in the north of England, happened to ask me what I did when I was going to college. And I said that I had to work in a Detroit steel factory to help my family and work my way through college. And he looked at me and he rested his elbow on his shoulder as we were standing there in 118 degree heat. And he said, I envy you. Mm. It was such a curious moment because I've been traveling around the world for a couple of years, as I said, after graduating with a fine degree from one of the great journalism schools in America, the University of Detroit. But because of Detroit's reputation and the fact that it had been my, my college was surrounded by barbed wire, Detroit was the murder capital of the Oops. world at the time, I was a little shari. I was a little careful about telling people I was from Detroit and, and worked in a factory. But at that moment, I realized, in a, in a curious sense, who I was. I was proud of working with my hands. I was proud of helping my family. I was proud to be from Motown, right? And from that moment on, I began to embrace that, the fact that I was born middle class, proud to be a worker, but also having trained my mind and my, my aesthetics. Years later, around two, actually it was 2001, I was asked to, in a sense, take the baton from Joe Campbell, my mentor, the great mythologist Joseph Campbell, and write a book on modern myth. And I did this. That book became a series of essays on in myth and contemporary society called Once and Future Myths. Curious thing happens. I finished the book around midnight in a cafe here in North Beach in San Francisco. I walk up the hill with my manuscript in my old leather travel satchel. And by the time I reached the top of Telegraph Hill where we lived, I felt like Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the mountain. Mm. <laughs> now, Sisyphus has been a, a very important character to me, the, the character from the Greek myths who was condemned to push the boulder up to the top of the hill and then watch it roll back to the bottom, because I think it's an extremely healthy and honest metaphor for the creative struggle. You push it up, and then it rolls back. You push it up, it rolls back. Why was it so heavy that night for me? I realized when I reached the top of the hill, I had written the book in Campbell's voice, Hillman's voice. 
uh, Bly's voice, uh, my mentors. There was still that sense in me, and it is in many, many writers, of still trying to seek approval from our mentors, our masters, our teachers, maybe even our parents. And it was at that moment at the top of the hill I realized, oh, my goodness, I had to rewrite the book. Oh. And I used every device known to creative man and woman to fetch time from my editor, so to speak, completely rewrote the book in my storytelling voice, the voice I use when I lead people on a literary and myth tour around Greece, telling the story of Odysseus and Ariadne and Theseus and the Minotaur and the Labyrinth, telling the story of Sisyphus. I rewrote the book in my storytelling voice. So I hope that makes sense, that there were two big moments there when I realized what my gift was. I'm not an academic, but I can tell a good story. And I believe in the power of language. I believe in the power of words, but my words. And I've often told that story when I've taught creative writing. I've uh, also referenced moments, for example, with Ray Charles, who I wrote about in my book on soul, that... Um, he had carved out quite a successful career with Atlantic Records in the 50s. And then when he went back to re-sign with the president of the, of the record company, Erdogan, the president, said, I'm not going to give you another contract. And according to the story, Ray Charles was insanely, was, he was furious. Why not? Why not? I'm making you a lot of money. And he said, because you're not singing in your own voice. You've been selling records. You've been singing like Nat King Cole and mm. Charles Brown and a few others. And then as, as I've read biographies of creative people around the world, many of us, if not most, John, reach this impasse where we realize we've had a modicum of success singing, writing, dancing, drawing like somebody else. And then there'll come a time when we can't fool the fates anymore. And we cannot advance until we settle down, sink down into, own our authentic voice. So your authentic voice is involved with storytelling. What, what else would you like to tell us about storytelling, how you use it, what it means, what it is? Stories, I believe, are at the heart of everything. I think stories are the first time machine. We can go into the past, we can go into the future. Stories are the greatest device known to humanity in terms of finding what meaning is in our life. We can give out information, but as T.S. Eliot told us, and I believe in the four quartets, where is the information lost in knowledge? Where is the wisdom lost in information and knowledge? It's in stories. Stories are the way in which we glean what is important from our experience and from history itself. Our great friend uh, Houston Smith, the religion historian, who is still alive, by the way, mm. thriving at 97 in bed, very happy in, in, as he's passing into the next realm, says that, that they are a way to winnow wisdom. And I, I like that. Uh, I think it's one reason why was it Franklin Roosevelt, I believe, was the one who said, for the first thing in the morning, I read the sports pages to learn of man's triumphs. And then, and only then, do I turn to the front page to learn of man's defeats and disasters. So stories brace us. Stories are a kind of, how about this, are a rehearsal for real life. 
Right. We look at a Tom Stoppard play. We read a myth by Ovid. We look at a Terrence Malick film, and we are actually participating. We're participating in the story, which is why we often feel like two minutes go by. Jason Robards said there were times when he did the five-hour Iceman Comet, and it felt like two minutes. Mm. Because he had descended, he had disappeared into story time. So I... Uh... Also influenced by Campbell, uh, think in this way. And, for example, I do a course in non-Western architecture. And just the other day, I began the lecture with Campbell's telling of the Percival myth. And then we look at the career of, um, you know, various movie makers. We see how the movies unfold these, uh, the hero journey and, and other fundamental stories. And then look at Clint Eastwood, and then you go from the Spaghetti Westerns to Dirty Harry, and then you do In the Line of Fire. That's exactly the Percival story. He, he did not act spontaneously. He failed his mission. He's in the wasteland. He gets a second chance. Um, and now, in relationship with a with a woman, he succeeds. And then look at um, uh, Grand Torino, which in which he's a bodhisattva. And so you sort of, and then seeing these patterns, you look at something like a Gothic cathedral. If you understand a Gothic cathedral, and you come across one where half of it's missing, you know what the missing half is because you know the pattern. My mother, when uh, she saw the movie Serpico, she said, oh, it's Antigone. <laughs> and uh, uh, you hear the story about the Lion King where they were struggling with what, what exactly is this movie about? And then someone said, it's Hamlet. And then everything fell into place. So uh, I see story as laying down the basic patterns through which we understand ourselves, our lives, and the circumstances that we encounter in life. I think of it as the thrill of recognition. Mm. Often we can feel alone in our pattern, as you call it. A teenager can feel like he or she is the first young person to ever think of suicide, the first to ever have their heart broken, the first to win a basketball game. And then you pull back and you begin to learn of other people's stories. You don't feel as alone in the world. And it's not just an intellectual moment of cognition. It's, it's a, what the French call a frisson. It's a shiver up the spine that reveals the truth, that we are part of a much larger story. I think it's one reason I've loved leading these art and literary and mythological tours since the early 1980s. So tell us about these tours. What are they? How do they work? What do you do? Since 1984, when I was asked to co-lead a tour with the poet Robert Bly and the storyteller Joya Timpanelli around Ireland, I've been leading groups to places like King Arthur's England, to our the artistic festooned Paris, Greece and Turkey. And there I try to find what I think of as the soul of the culture. And the soul is in that overlap between its physical history, as in the architecture. It would be marvelous to do one of these with you someday, John. 
cool, but also love the it. stories. <laughs> yes, the the music, the art, the painting, and the stories. So if I'm telling a story about Rumi in Konya, Turkey, or about Odysseus on one of the islands in the Aegean, I try to wrap them in such a way that people can see their own lives. For example, a few years ago, I was asked, this was pretty bold, to lead 22 16-year-olds around the Greek islands. And I, I did it. They had read my book, The Art of Pilgrimage, and they asked me to lead them somewhere. Where do you want to take us, Mr. Cousineau? So I took them to Greece. And the very first morning, John, I began telling them the Minotaur story. Theseus and Ariadne, the Minotaur and the Labyrinth and the Island of Crete. And it's even got sex in it. <laughs> well, that's exactly where I'm going with this, because as I began to weave the tale, I realized that this was going to right where they were at that moment. And I was tempted to pull back, because <clears throat> there is that bit of enchantment between Ariadne, the princess of Crete, and King Theseus of Athens. But then I realized I, I couldn't pull back. I had to give them full voltage. And then there was a moment there that I, I like to think I, I use in virtually all of my writing, my interviews on the Global Spirit Show or in the tours, I try to help someone identify. Uh, Joe Campbell used to say, a, a story is like a circle, and it's made up of 360 degrees. There is a point of entry into every story for every viewer or reader. Find out what that arc is. Find out what your opening is. In this case, I looked at all these kids right at the moment when Theseus enters the, the core of the labyrinth to battle the Minotaur, and I paused and I asked the kids, so what is your labyrinth? That's uh -huh. the metaphor, and they, I could feel the electricity vibrating in this hotel on the, on the island of, of Crete. They were vibrating there. I asked them, what's your labyrinth? Because if you can't name it, it will, ha it will have control over you for the rest of your life. Is it your relationship with God? <clears throat> Is it sex? Is it your issues with your parents? Is it your issue with identity? Name your labyrinth. And then I ask them, as I do with everybody when I lead these tours around the world, now write about this. Where is your entrance into this story? Those kids were magnificent. Uh, 20 minutes go by. Mr. Cousineau, can I have 10 more minutes? Can we have 15 more minutes? Can we have 20 minutes? An hour later, all 22 kids had written at least a page on what this story meant to them. <clears throat> so th this is what I like to do with both the tours and my teaching, even if I'm teaching creative writing, find your entry into the world's great stories. And then you will, in a miraculous but a natural way, unfold your own story. Cool. So, listen, we're, we're all very familiar with the classic myths, even, even Joseph Campbell when he was first commissioned to do what became Hero with a Thousand Faces. For a while he called it How to Read a Myth, but he was asked to do a remake of Bullfinch. So, you know, the, all the stories we're familiar with of the Greek myths and maybe the Norse myths. And you talk about myths today and soul in our world today. So what's different and how do we uh, bring these into our contemporary world? A uh, wonderful question. Yes, I, I was on that film team. I know exa the exact moment you're describing in our film, The Hero's Journey. <coughs> Excuse me. And he, our, 
<clears throat> Campbell realized he could have gotten a, a, a book deal to write one more compendium of myth. But he announces quite clearly, and I've been saying this now for almost 30 years since the film was released, giving hundreds of talks on Campbell around the world, he wanted to do what the scholars had avoided over the years. They had always written and emphasized the differences, the distinctions between one culture and the other. And, of course, they are there, and we don't want to whitewash the nuances, as Jamaka Highwater once actually told Joe, told Joe Campbell. Instead, Campbell announced that he wanted to look for the correspondences. What are the similarities? What are the archetypes? Which is a fancy word for pattern, by the way. And in those correspondences, we can find out where we can identify with people all around the world. And then, as he told the audience when we premiered the film, Directors Guild, 1987, down in Los Angeles, that it's by finding the similarities, the correspondences between us and other cultures around the world, where we will stop demonizing the other. That was an important message with him. And that's what... I have tried to do with my almost 40 books now and 20-plus documentary films. I'm constantly looking for the similarities, the correspondences, so we see what we have in common. If we are constantly, as cultures, emphasizing the differences, the differences, the differences. We are all strangers to one another. When you look for modern myths, ask where stories are magnetized. Look for where people become sometimes irrational because the story has overpowered them. We then have myths of progress where we, as a culture in America, specifically here um, the United States, we have believed wholeheartedly in the fact that history is going towards the future, one evolutionary step at a time. Not all cultures in human history have believed this. Right. This, is an, this is an American story. We are becoming better. We're becoming purer. We're actually becoming superior to other people, which is why we give ourselves the grace, so to speak, to run roughshod over the rest of the world. That's, that's evidence of a myth. The myth is the overpowering story, not just a story, but the overpowering story. Uh, One that's so dear to my heart because I've written so much and I teach often about creativity is the myth of the artist. The myth of the artist in our time is quite different from the myth of the artist, let's say, in Bali or traditional cultures around the world in which you are simply a craftsperson. So let me interrupt and tell a a little anecdote where uh, one of my colleagues did a – in architecture school, did a project for a Tibetan cultural center. So for the review, I brought out our our Tibetan monk teacher, and he brought two buddies with him, and they all came in their monk's robes, sweeping into the school, and it was a big stir. And they sat on the review and said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was driving them back, and Loeb Sang says, every student does their own project. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a famous sand painter. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's marvelous. Yeah. So listen, sure. uh, my guest is Phil Cousineau, and let's just uh, take a break. And, Phil, when we come back, I want to ask you uh, about the 
how you decided to live independently, freelancingly, and how that has been working for you. So we'll be back in a few minutes. Stay tuned to PRN.FM for more empowering ideas from progressive voices. We're moving forward, and we hope you're coming with us. Have you ever listened to Anthony Robbins, watched the movie called The Secret, or read about the power of positive thinking from the perspective of any of the many fine authors who have written about the subject? They all focus on the law of attraction, which governs every second of every life of every person in the universe. Like attracts like, and everything you do, feel, and think about as a regular way of being determines your life experiences. PRN's new show, LOA Today, explores all aspects of this magnificent law of the universe every Thursday evening from 7 to 8 p.m. Join hosts Walt Thiessen and Yuona June Thiessen as we explore the law of attraction each week. That's LOA Today, Thursday evenings from 7 to 8 p.m. here on PRN. South of the border. I'm Johnny Mueller, host of the Expat Files, Living in Latin America. Heard Friday at 11 a.m. and Sunday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's a show where you'll learn how to work, play, do business, or retire and live the life of Riley. Yes, an amazing number of first world people like you are jumping off the stateside treadmill and voting with their feet. And surprise, surprise, they're finding there really is an American dream. But it's not in Seattle, Milwaukee, or Cleveland anymore. It's down here in Latin America. So be sure to tune into the Expat Files to find out how you can live the good life on a measly social security check. This is Dr. Cheryl Selman, and I'm the host of What Women Must Know, every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. As a naturopathic doctor and psychotherapist, I'm always seeking the latest solutions to help you rejuvenate and regenerate your body, mind, and spirit. So join me, Dr. Cheryl, and my inspiring guests, authors, health practitioners, and wise elders to empower yourself by expanding your knowledge about your health and your hormones and to gain fresh new perspectives on life. That's What Women Must Know, every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. You can't always get what you want. Welcome back to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. You'll find us here on prn.fm, Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Unfortunately for our guest, Phil Cousineau, it's 7 in the morning, or now 7.26. And so my guest is um, author, lecturer, scholar, screenwriter, and documentary filmmaker, Phil Cousineau. And Phil, I want to ask you the following. I, I want to do a little bit, of, since you're a sports writer and have written about baseball, a little bit of inside baseball here. And I'll talk first about myself. I thought about, you know, I was going to be an artist. Can you make a living as an artist? I wanted to be a writer, a critic. Uh, I, you know, I wrote for art magazines. And I fell into a full-time teaching job and got tenure, and I love it. I mean, I, I, it's a wonderful school, Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, incredibly creative 
colleagues, incredibly creative students. But there's also the path not taken, where all the things I might have done, uh, if I, you know, maybe it's a matter of personal courage to set out and say, I'm going to do something without a security blanket. There's a wonderful interview toward the end of his life, major article in the New York Times about John Updike. And he said he was a staff writer at a very young age at the New Yorker magazine. And he quit, moved up uh, to New England, uh, got a house with a room upstairs where he could go every day and write. And he said, I decided I was going to be a writer and I was going to make my living as a writer. And so tell us a little bit about how you chose the past you chose and what it's like to have to write two books every year. <laughs> Thank you for such a, a pertinent question. I think about it every day, John. I think about it every day. Um, I think about the fork in the road. You took one, I took the other. That's life, right? Yeah. First, first the word, freelance, since we're both word hounds, logophiles, as they say. Freelance is a noble, venerable, venerable tradition. It harkens back to medieval times when knights in shining armor would rumble up to the wall of a castle, lift the lance, and say, I'm available to fight for you. A freelancer is someone who roams the world searching for work, offering his or her wares. I think I'm in a noble tradition, and I know exactly the moment it began. I had to work those nearly four years in the Detroit Steel Factory in the early 70s, and the last day that I punched out, I was so tired. I was surrounded in a death cult for so long because it was a very violent world, I vowed I would never work for anybody again. So let's, now, stop, let's stop right there because mm -hmm. uh, you say steel mill. And um, did you follow Gene Shepard? Uh, were you able to listen to him as a kid? No. Okay, no. He's, he's the, uh, he did the movie Gene Shepard's A Christmas Story. But he was uh, one of the pioneers of freeform radio. And every... Sunday night, I think it was, he had a three-hour radio show late at night, and <laughs> I'd be in trouble on Monday morning uh, having listened to it into the night. But he would just create stories, and et cetera. And he, would, he worked in a steel mill. He grew up in the Midwest. And he describes the, you know, pouring the molten steel. So what were you actually doing? What were you exposed to? Were you looking at, you know, red-hot monster ignits uh, uh, going down the line, being rolled into structural forms? Or what, what does it mean working in a steel mill? That was just down the road from us. My dad actually led tours around the River Rouge plant where they poured the steel, and wow. in 57 minutes, a car came out the other end. I was in one of these supply factories where we created steel nuts, which meant that I would sometimes was in the shipping department shipping the nuts to the big three, as they said, Ford, GM, and Chrysler. But often I worked on the machinery as well, where we would have these rolls, massive rolls of wire that would come into the punches. And I would be operating the presses, churning out hundreds of thousands of these steel nuts mm. night after night after night, which would keep our engines on our uh, intact and our tires on, on our axles. And it was, it was violent. It was ugly. It was loud noise. 
And I, I, as a young guy, I felt a bit of resentment because I had to do this, and I couldn't play basketball for U of D, which is what I really wanted to do. However, something beautiful came out of it, and that was I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder that I was never going to work for anybody else when I got out of there. Cool. And w- one, other, one other matter that I've now Im- um, interwoven into my teaching technique because people are often asking how can I write what I really want to write and still make a living as you're asking me and that is there was a ritual on, fr- on uh, Friday nights when everybody would check out at the time clock and I would ask especially the old black fellas there who would come up from the south many of the musicians who ended up working in Motown and the jazz clubs I was what are you going to do over the weekend buddy and one of the older older fellows said, one for me, Cousineau, one for the man. One for me, one for the man. One for me, one for the man. And that meant you spent 40 hours paying your, working to pay your bills, support your kids, uh, pay your mortgage. But then your weekend was your own time. I have evolved that into my philosophy in which I have to write a certain amount of things to pay the rent here on our house in San Francisco, help support my family. But always, since the very beginning of my writing career, I have always been writing poetry, short stories, taking photographs, publishing books of poetry. So my life has been a weave of working for the man just to support myself stubbornly as a freelancer rather than working as a full-time teacher and then combining some lecturing, teaching, the tours, always, always keeping my finger on the soul of my creativity, to coin a phrase, by constantly having a book on the side, which I will publish myself in my Sisyphus Press, incidentally. Mm. And that has become an important part of my teaching because I'll, I'll, I'll come to people who are at a crossroad, an impasse with their creativity. And the simple question is, what are you writing for your soul? Wow. What are you creating for you, not for the marketplace, not for your name, not for money necessarily, but for your soul? And in that way, I always have at least two writing projects going. <clears throat> one would be a contract with one of the big venerable houses like HarperCollins or University of California Press. But on the other side, outside of commerce, Outside of any need for recognition, I'm writing my poetry, my short stories, sometimes travel logs, books of photography, sometimes uh, pro bono work, which some of the, the uh, let's say, films on uh, Native Americans. I've done six films on Native Americans. One for me, one for the man. One for me, one for the man. And this question to my writing students, John, has often helped break a log jam because all of us, even people who are writing for a living, are sometimes wishing, oh my, what I really need to do is finish my novel. Or I really need to collect all of my paintings and have an independent show and then produce a catalog out of that. So I'll ask and challenge people, what are you writing for you, for maybe your children's children's children, so they can understand who their great-grandfather was? And in this way, we don't lose track with our real soul's impulse. Great. So my guest again is Phil Cousineau, if you're just joining us. And we're broadcast online, so if you're listening online, why don't you hop over to Wikipedia, look up Phil Cousineau, C-O-U-S-I-N-E-A-U, and then 
Also, you can hop over to Phil. What's the URL for your own uh, website? Uh, <clears throat> www.philcousineau.com. Cool. So we have the advantage here in uh, <laughs> this technology that that's right at our fingertips. I I always. Uh, you know, with my students, sometimes we're even reading something, you know, uh, I gave them a PDF, and they're reading it, and I say, okay, this word here, who can tell me what this word means? And nobody knows. I say, how many people looked it up? You were online. <laughs> <laughs> There's no excuse. You don't have to go to the other room and find a dictionary. <laughs> so uh, hopefully we learn to be fluid in our absorption of this of this material, and so do look at Phil's website while we're here. Phil, um, tell us a bit about your TV show and where we find it, what you try to cover on it. Yes, yes. In 2008, I got a phone call from a local filmmaker, Stephen Olson, who had been working for Frontline for many years and then was a filmmaker for Link TV, a satellite station that's been up for at least 15 years, covering international politics. The metaphor being quite apt, the founder, Kim Spencer, coming to a, an extremely painful realization some years ago that Americans tend to be the least linked people in the Western world in mm -hmm. terms of what's happening with the rest of the world. We know less than our neighbors do about each other. Right. And and so Stephen felt that they could do for culture and spirituality what they've been doing for politics. And so he came up with a, a concept called Global Spirit, a, a show in which we would interview a couple of guests from other corners of the world to find out what's happening culturally in contrast to what Link had been doing for politics. So he contacted me and realized that I was very comfortable interviewing people because of my background in documentary filmmaking. And we set out, this was in 2008, to make a series of shows with innovative guests from around the world with, with a, a singular conceit, and that is have all, in every show, have a balance between men and women, but also people representing diverse cultures. So in one show, we might have a Tibetan painter in conversation about art with not just another white male artist from Greenwich Village, but perhaps a Guatemalan um, potter mm. in a show that we did on who is God, the existence of God. We have an American philosopher, Jacob Needleman, but he's in conversation with a Sufi mystic, Pir Zia, com combining people's to come up with what Antonio Machado, the great Spanish poet, once called the third thing, the unexpected thing that happens in a great conversation with people who haven't met each other, but they have pursued perhaps similar, similar paths. We ran on Link for a couple of years, and then at least two years ago, PBS picked us up. We began with um, 100 stations out of roughly 252 American television markets. We ended up after two years with John Cleese from Monty Python as our presenting host, by the way, on over 220 of the stations. Right. That was the first season, which can be seen, by the way, on Amazon Prime. Any of our listeners can see the entire first season of 10 shows on Amazon Prime. And next spring, 
we launch again on PBS with 13 new shows, and our presenting hosts will be Carlos and Cindy Santana coming on and saying, this is what the world needs, cross-cultural conversation. It's, uh, I think Bill Moyers said this is the world's first internal travel series. <laughs> That's a hook that I love. Wow. Right. And said that these are the conversations that the world needs desperately right now. And I was so happy to get that from Mr. Moyers because he is one of our sages in terms of communication. Sure. And the, if you recall, Sam Keen wrote a very important book called The Faces of the Enemy 15-plus years ago. Right. And it was accompanied by an Emmy award-winning documentary film of the same title, The Faces of the Enemy. And what he was doing there is what we're trying to do and many others with us in the progressive movement, and that is know as much as possible about other cultures so we stop demonizing and even killing them. There is and always has been throughout human history a fear of the other with a capital O. And the fear of the other only takes root if we are ignorant about them. In the original Greek sense of ignorance, which means we don't know anything about them, whole specters rise up in a vacuum of real information. And, of course, today post-election, that's exactly where we are now. Right. We are living in a welter of news in which we're not sure what we're getting. The rise of fake news is Orwellian, for goodness sakes. So in Global Spirit, in which the viewers, by the way, can go to globalspirittv.com and look on our website. You can get free clips. You can watch entire shows on the website. We are trying to do this, bring the world into American American households. But, however, we're also pleased to know that the show also goes out on the Internet. So we have viewers in Uruguay, Russia, uh, the Aran Islands in the west of, of Ireland. People are watching the show online all around the world. We got one interesting, I got one inter, interesting email a, few, a couple of years ago by a group of 15 Russians watching our show in the basement of a church in St. Petersburg, and one of them wrote for the others and said, we did not know Americans were so deep. We didn't know <laughs> Americans asked these kinds of questions. Please, more, more, more. <laughs> Great. And then another touching one, if I can add one more. Sure. For the show with Pierzia and Jacob Needleman, uh, we had a webcast afterwards, which, which is where we will bring the guests on by Skype, and viewers can tune in immediately following the broadcast of the show which will be Sunday nights coming up in early 2017. And the first um, caller that came in from Cairo, Egypt, John, Cairo, Egypt. And I was a little tremulous about this. Oh, my God, what would we have said? I hope we didn't offend anybody. But right. instead, the viewer said, I was watching your show with some friends here in Cairo, and I just want to tell you that, we could never have had a conversation like this in our country. Mm. And we like to think that this is the best of what America has to offer, a free, ranging, intelligent conversation about deep issues. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but the spirit of that recognition of real inquiry came through. And I was, I was shaken to the core about uh, the belief in the importance of um, robust conversation, if you will. Great. 
Well, congratulations on the show, and it's fantastic that it's spreading, and I'm looking forward to your next season. Thank you. Um, you Did you once describe to me that you do work with prisoners, and if so, could you describe what that's about and what you're finding? It's, I don't do the direct work myself with, with the prisoners, but what's happened is that many of my books have gotten into prisons. Mm. Um, the Art of Pilgrimage, for example, for some reason has taken hold there. And I've, I've been told that it can be a kind of release or a source of solace to look at incarceration, which is the burial of a body. That's what it means originally in Latin. So your body and your spirit can be buried in a prison, but if you look at it as a pilgrimage, you have entered and you will, unless you have a life sentence, you will someday come out again. So that I've gotten a lot of prison, um, letters from places like Folsom Prison, San Quentin, other prisons around America about that book, but also the creativity book is being used in writing classes by prisoners. I got a, a pile of 15 letters from Folsom Prison a few years ago in which they responded by saying, um, we didn't think there was any purpose or meaning in our time here. We've just been notching the, the, the walls in ourselves, so to speak. Right. But our creativity teacher came in and said that we were, they were going to use my book, Stoking the Creative Fires, as, as a method to make something, create something out of their time. Now, the, the most important book out of all of these, then, is probably the most recent, Beyond Forgiveness, Reflections on Atonement. This comes out of one of our episodes from Global Spirit on forgiveness and healing. The notion inspired by Desmond Tutu and others that there is no future without forgiveness. If you are hell-bent on revenge, the Chinese say, dig to graves. Right. Isn't that a remarkable proverb? Right. So that book is now being used in prisons as a way to reflect what can I do? Are, is it possible for me to make amends from within the prison or when I get out? Is it possible to make some kind of restitution? The book is being used in, uh, very heavily in Canada, New Zealand, Australia, uh, American Indian reservations, where a new form of justice, a new uh, 20 years or so, called restorative justice. Do not just lock people away. Make it possible for people to make amends. I'm really happy that it's had that kind of life, but the most important outpouring probably now is from um, military veterans, because one of the people that I interview on the Global Spirit Show, Ed Tick, and his wife, Kate Dahlstadt, also wrote essays for my book, Beyond Forgiveness. They have gotten the book into the U.S. military. It is now being used by the U.S. military and often given as gifts to returning veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan as a handover to say, here is a different way of looking at trauma. Here is a different way of looking at something wretched, horrible, um, eviscerating that we may have done in the world, and yet we might be able to make amends, restitution, reconciliation of some kind. That's great. Let me, let me just interrupt yeah. and say, you know, again, we're, we're both, uh, whatever the word is, fans of Joseph Campbell. 
And when Campbell would be doing Greek mythology, he'd do a, a whole lecture on the Odyssey, and his take on the Odyssey was that Odysseus and his crew leave Troy, and then they go and sack a city. And the gods say, these people aren't ready to return home. And so one interpretation of the Odyssey is all the adventures are different types of preparation to heal these warriors and make them, again, able to lead a civilian life. That's magnificent. I remember that lecture exactly. He gave, he gave a beautiful rendition of that in 1982 at Esalen Institute in, in Big Sur. That Using that kind of analysis, the meta-analysis, is often what I do. I have a personal uh, theory that 90-plus percent of our movies and our plays are about amends, atonement. The mm -hmm. hero does something against his or her own conscience in the first act, spends the second act contemplating this, ruminating over it, often anguishing over it. And then the third act of almost all Western drama, since it was plays were first enacted by Euripides and Sophocles on the slopes of the Acropolis, third acts are about making up for some wrong act that we did early yeah. on. And we need this, again, this is where part of the Greek genius is. When we watch a play or a movie in our time, we are rehearsing different paths of behavior that we might take. Oh, I could do this. I could do that. Look what that hero is doing. Look what the her that heroine is doing. There are consequences for our acts and, and often even our thoughts. So this is, in a sense, to wrap up what a lot of these books are about, giving voices to people. That's what I'm trying to do in these books. And also say in every book of mine, every film, every radio and TV interview I do, words have the power of healing. If we know the deep history, if we use our words correctly and soulfully, our words and our stories can heal. The, the world is constantly falling asleep. That is the nature of the, the human beast. But art, philosophy, literature, sometimes sports can help wake us up, wake us up again. Um, I, I heard in your previous interview this notion about follow your, your bliss. I was editing some of Joseph Campbell's early audio tapes. These were lectures that he did in New York City in the early 1960s. And a few times, a question came up in the audience, John. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in a midlife crisis. What do I do? What do I do? Uh, there's no meaning in my life. I'm torpid. I'm numb. What do I do? Joe's answer in those days, and in many ways I wish he had stuck to it, was follow your fascination. Uh -huh. Your deep, deep fascination. Something that you cannot get out of your head. This, I believe, it has a good Anglo-Saxon hum to it. You can almost hear Beowulf's howl in this. If we can tell young people this, follow your deep fascination, which borders on obsession. It could be art. It could be politics. It could be social justice or spirituality. But when we are fascinated, we are deeply focused. It's a soul focus, as opposed to being focused on the passing trends of the day. Like Mihai's flow. So, uh, listen, let me, yeah. let me use this to make a, a segue to cover one more of your books. And 
you are interested in word origins. So I recall my my father told the story that as a little boy, he's sitting at the dinner table and there's a bottle of vinegar. And he looks at vinegar, Vanagra, aged wine. <laughs> and then he realizes words have all these stories, you know, that, that can tell us about their origins and and whole stories about our world. And so right when you were speaking, I opened up your book, The Painted Word, and there you've got, which is um, Phil's book, a treasure chest of remarkable words and their origins. So it's always great to read these kinds of things, and there's fascination. <laughs> Intensely interested, deeply attracted, in awe, even terror. So you see these, and then Phil goes on as a whole half a page that's going to describe where this word came from and meanings that it's had. And we come to realize that our our words have meanings that might not uh, seem so direct, but then we realize that that's that that's saying something, you know, that that maybe we're projecting unconsciously, even though we're not fully aware of that in a word. For example, I just flipped, and here's dexterous, right-handed. And so right-handed is good, left-handed is bad, bar sinister. Uh, sinister simply means left-handed. Bar sinister means on your shield, the bar goes diagonally to the left. But we take it to have a negative meaning, and then we're prejudiced against left-handed people. So uh, we can see these the power of these words. So I appreciate that Phil's a, uh, a a wordsmith. And then also how you put the words together. Have you read Pinker's The Sense of Style? It's on my shelf as well. Oh it's boy, it's just part. it's just fascinating, and he's so mm. thorough. And he he this, he he tries to be polite about it, but he takes apart. Um, um, What's the book we always tell students to read? Strunk and White. Strunk and White. Strunk Strunk and White. Yeah. Elements he, of style. He goes, he goes through all the things that they get wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, that fits into my, my overall pattern of fascination in my life in that it goes back to the beginning. Um, derivation means going back to the source of the river. Samuel Johnson first used it that way. And I, I've come to realize over the years that this has been part of the pulse. Maybe it's because we read these old classics, Homer, Mark Twain, when I was growing up, and then went to museums. Uh, we read Moby Dick, and then we drove to New Bedford, Massachusetts, to look at the house where Melville wrote the book. I grew up with this, and I, I'm, I believe I'm still following that path now. Do you know Edwin Ettinger, the Jungian psychologist? Oh, yes. He wrote a brilliant analysis of Moby Dick in, in which he said the underground, underworld, night world journey is back and down, down to a source at the beginning of something or somebody which gives you the energy to move forward. Hmm. That's like Kierke uh, Kierkegaard saying life needs to be lived forwards but understood backwards. Aha. Uh -huh. So it, it does help us to find out what the mythic origin is of our behavior, envy, jealous, lust, desire, passion. All of those primordial emotions are embodied in the myths. That's why they continue to live on. It's the same power that is evoked if we 
walk across the room in the old days to our dictionary on the dictionary stand. Now we can do it on our iPhones. But to pause, take a breath, look up the origin of the word to make sure we are using it with respect and clarity. So, for example, I know you love the whole world of creativity. I begin my book, John, uh, Soaking the Creative Fires. I look at the word create, creative, create, again and again, and then I have to slap my forehead. Do I really know what this word means? Tell us. So I follow my, my own medicine, and I walk across the room to my father's old Thorndike Barnhart Dictionary. Look it up. You know what it means originally? It means it comes from creer, and it means to grow or to make order out of chaos. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. There's a whole new dignity to the word now. It's not just being a fever-browed artist in the garret in Paris. Everybody, to create is as natural as breathing, if you look at it this way. If you were, remember Bob Dylan, our new Nobel Prize winner, he who isn't busy being bored and is busy dying? My right. take on that is he or she who is not busy creating is busy dying. Wow. It's natural, and it is the way that we make order out of chaos. So, Phil, one minute to go. So let me, uh, anything that we missed, and again, remind us about when your next sacred travel is and uh, where people find your webpage as we wrap up. Yes, uh, thank you. Next April, I am leading a tour to Cuba. I've been wanting to go all my life. My father worked in the clubs, like the Copacabana in the late 40s and early 50s. So this is a pilgrimage for me to go back. And because of my love of baseball, anybody who comes on the tour, I am asking to bring baseball equipment so we can hand it out to kids around the country. Uh, Next fall, fall 2017, I'm leading another tour to Ireland in search of the myths and poetry of Ireland followed by one of my annual writer's retreats out in Renville House in Connemara, where we spend eight to ten days, depending on the year, learning how to write with soul, learn how to say something original in our life that we can stand by and be proud of. Great. And then, again, remind us your URL for your webpage so they can find you to get in touch about all this. Great. Thank you. You can find out about my tours, books, and films by going to philcousineau.com, www.philcousineau.com. You can also find information there about creative consultation. I help people write books and films Great. and plays and so on. And then globalspirittv.com, our new season, 13 new shows coming up in spring 2017. Phil, thank you. Again, this is Visionary. See you again next week.